So let me just set and paint the picture again for those who are listening online as well. What we want to do is uh, realize that as we look at this book of Galatians, we have a guy named Paul who went to these group of churches or where he went to this area, this region called Galatia. And on his previous trip, he went and he taught about Jesus. He taught about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, that Jesus is alive. And he taught about his death and his resurrection and how we uh, back then and today can put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ to make us right with God. And by that faith, we also are made right with God through Jesus and we receive his Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul taught and that's what the people there believed. And they were made right through Jesus Christ by faith and we now receive his Holy Spirit who now empowers us. And it was great news and incredible things happened. Now, Paul's moved on and he's gone to other places to teach the same thing. And while he's been away, other teachers have come in and they begin to teach the Galatian Christians there other things. They said, well, Jesus is fine, everything here. But in order to really be right with God, you need to add other things onto just believing and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's uh, sort of the story. And Paul writes this letter, and he's going, no! Well, that's my interpretation of what he's uh, saying anyways. And Paul, in sort of lawyer-like um, fashion, begins to write from, he says, hello, how you doing? And then he's like, right away in chapter 1, he begins to bring explanation and teaching, saying, no, you don't need to add things to Jesus. And these people are leading you astray, and you're going back to the old ways, and he begins to methodically teach into why Jesus, from looking at the Scriptures and Old Testament, is the way to God. Jesus is the way to be right with God. Jesus is the way that we have a relationship with God that we can call Him Father. All those things. And that's where we pick up the story. And that's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. And Paul begins to argue, sort of in a court of law, how and interpreting Old Testament. And he's saying, hey, folks, God loves you, and he created you, but we've got a problem called sin. And he goes through, and he says how God, out of his sovereignty, gave promises to a guy named Abram, who changed his name to Abraham, and he gave promises. He says, all the nations are going to be blessed through you. And that was a promise. God's going to keep it. And time goes on. But in the meantime, God also gives some promises to a guy named Moses. And he gives the law, and he gives the Ten Commandments, and he gives this whole way of how God's people are to respond. And Paul's bringing explanation, saying, the promise that given Abraham, this is what Ryan was looking at last week from Galatians 3. Okay? The law that was given after Abraham doesn't nullify the promises given to Abraham. And the promises to Abraham, Abraham believed. Okay? God promised, and Abraham like, I don't know how God's going to do it, but God said it, I believe it, and God said, Woo, that's what I'm looking for to live by faith, and to believe me. And it said it was credit to him as righteousness, as right standing with God. And that promise given Abraham, he said, someone's going to come later on, and that's Jesus. But in the meantime, the law was given. Okay, And we're going to take a look at today, why was the law given? Because Paul's opponents are saying, the law still applies, and you need to go back to the law Old Testament. You need to follow these things. You need all these external things that you need to do in addition to Jesus. So that kind of brings us up to speed today. And Paul's saying, no, wait a minute. The promise is given to Abraham. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now we are like Abraham. We put our faith in Christ. So we live by 
faith in Jesus, therefore we're children of Abraham. And the confusing question is, what about the law? What about the Ten Commandments? What about all those laws given in the Old Testament? Does that apply to us today? Were they bad? Were they evil? That's where we pick up the story. And we're going to see the purpose of the law. So we're going to pick it up in Galatians 3. That's sort of the background to get us right up to verse 13. We're going to read it to verse 26. And Paul writes this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Just as we've been singing and talking about this morning. For it is written in the Old Testament, Cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, all those who aren't Jewish, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Hallelujah. To give a human example, brothers, even when a man made covenant, so like a will, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And Ryan said that last week. When a will is put in place, you can't change it. It's permanent. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, or seed in some translations. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Jesus is the one that's coming down the line of Abraham. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So again, as Ryan explained last week, God gave promises to Abraham. 430 years later, Moses gave, he gave the law to Moses. That doesn't annul or disqualify the promise given to Abraham. We're going to build on that. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? Here's the question. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come, that's Jesus, to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So we have that back Old Testament, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. All right. God, we pray this morning, please help us to understand uh, your word, that we might live by it, that we might obey it and submit to it, and that we would be transformed by your word and through your spirit in Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's take a look at today. What are some purposes for why the law was given? And first, just sort of point, just to say, it's a timely purpose, is that When God gave the promise to Abraham, later on, 430 years later, because we have this issue of sin, transgression, God had a way to deal with that. And until Jesus came, that's until the promise came, we had to deal with sin. And the law was added to deal with sin. So what do we mean by that? Okay? We can say this. The law was given in a timely manner because it was really used as a preparation for Jesus' coming. 
And we see that, you know what? Right from the beginning, okay, God gave this promise to Abraham. Then he put in place the law. It was for a season. It was preparation until Jesus came. So the first thing we have to take a look at, okay, it's, it was timely. It's for a season or a time. And we're going to go Old Testament and just briefly, you can read it in Exodus 19, Exodus 20. And probably some of you might remember the story of God meeting with Moses and his people. And God came and he gave his law. Most of it, we sort of, when we say law, we're speaking of the Ten Commandments. He gave them, remember he wrote them on the tablets, and he gave them to his people. And he's like, here's what I want in my relationship with you. And if you can remember the Ten Commandments, Okay, I won't quiz you, but they begin with God, don't they? Okay, not to have any other gods before me. Okay, don't make any idols, any graven images. Don't worship them. Don't bow down to them. Don't serve them. Okay, don't swear. Like keep my name holy. Okay, it's a name that's different from any other thing. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Okay, remember to rest and that you're resting in me. Okay, and then we continue on. He talks about honoring your parents and don't murder and don't commit adultery and don't steal and don't covet. And he goes through all the things that summed up really in the Ten Commandments. And then he brings other things in to the people of God. So he brings in ceremonial things that has to do with the whole system of getting right with God. He brings in civil because it's a whole nation. He brings in all these different things for his people to know this is what I expect from you. It was established. And we see right away that those Ten Commandments, even if we just stick to the Ten Commandments, let alone the other 613, I think, ones that go with it, we realize very quickly, okay, the Ten Commandments really judge our heart and our actions. Because the first three have to do with worship. It's a heart issue. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to worship? So there's a whole heart issue, but then there's also your behavior. How are you going to treat your parents? Very practical one. How are you going to treat your neighbor? Are you going to covet their possessions, their wife, their husband, all those different things? Are you going to lie? Are you going to steal? All these things right away establish what God wants in his relationship. And we begin to see this very clearly. The law defines sin. So that's one of the purposes of the law. It defines right from wrong. It draws a line in the sand. And I think throughout history you can see this, but certainly in our day, most of it goes like this. If you were to ask people today, well, here's what I think is right or wrong, and most of the time, your answer is going to be this from people. Well, that's your opinion. And we get that in every form of society. That's your opinion. Well, I believe this about abortion. Well, that's your opinion. I believe this about that. Well, that's your opinion. Versus God putting in his word an unchanging standard. So this is what God defines as right or wrong. And it brings definition so that we understand and we're held accountable that we can't say, well, I didn't know that was wrong. God states out, my people, this is how I want you to live. Okay. And we see examples of the difference between the two all the time, don't we? Okay. So Kevin and I were talking the other day, Bill Clinton in the 90s, perfect example okay, of changing definitions <laughs> of truth and moving Sort of the goalposts of saying, well, before we thought sexual immorality was any sort of relationship outside of marriage, whether it's all kinds of different things. Bill Clinton on oath saying, 
I never had sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky. And under oath, President of the United States. But his definition later that he brought to was a very narrow <laughs> definition to it. Like, well, that's my opinion. That's how I define right from wrong. Okay? And we're saying, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. Okay? The Bible brings a different clarification from right from wrong. Okay? And that's very helpful to us. Okay? It's quite scary, but actually it's very helpful to us because now we know right from wrong. It's like right now at the Olympics, isn't there? Every sport, every competition, guess what? There's rules and there's guidelines laid down so people know the parameters that they're involved in. And we see very quickly, which is an aside, how many were disqualified for failing drug tests before the Olympics even <laughs> began. See, Paul's beginning to build a case here that the law is actually quite purposeful. Okay? There's a purpose to it. Okay? It sets up what God expects, it's in place till Jesus comes, and it does this. It defines sin. And folks, in our world, we, we need something to define because we're a very postmodern, whatever you believe works for you, and as long as it doesn't hurt me, then we're okay. And that's the world we live in. I'll get to define right from wrong. And the law, kachunk, brings a, a, a drawing a line in the sand, saying this is what God thinks. The other difference with the law is this. When we talk about, well, we don't even like to use the word sin in our everyday life. Okay? We talk about moral failure. We talk about a social disorder. We use all these different terms. But sin and the law brings, first and foremost, that our wrongdoing isn't just between us as people. First and foremost, it's an offense against God. And that's what makes it different from most other philosophies here on earth. It starts with God. Therefore, we can't compare ourselves to other people. We can say, well, this person, you know, at least I'm better than most people on planet Earth. And we say, well, I've never hurt anyone. I've never killed anyone. I've never done these things. So I'm doing pretty good. And we compare ourselves to other people. But actually, the law comes and says it judges us not only against each other, but actually, first and foremost, against God. So in the Ten Commandments, as I said, it starts out with, you shall have no other God's little g before me. You shouldn't create idols that you're going to worship. It's sin when we are, when our heart's set on other things. We can think we're not hurting anyone. We're just isolated in our own little world. No one even knows I'm being good to people. But we miss out the main thing that the law brings. It's not comparing ourselves to other people. It's God's standard. It's an offense against God. And that changes everything. And that's a wake-up call for most of us. And I put down, you just look at other things that people would maybe, whether they realize or not, classify themselves in. If we were to say, what sort of worldview do you follow? The Bible, people might think, old, outdated, everything. But at least as a Christian, you can say, well, this is where I get truth from. And this is where I get definition for what I feel is right or wrong. Okay? In humanism, who gets to decide right from wrong. So if I think that I'm the little g God, who decides right from wrong? And that's the world we live in, isn't it? Everyone, we're trying to figure that thing out. Who gets to decide? 
You might disagree with the Bible, but at least it's clear God is saying what's right or wrong as opposed to who gets to decide, who has the loudest voice, okay, who has the most money, who has the most power, who has the most influence, decides right from wrong. Evolution, who gets to decide right from wrong when it's survival of the fittest? And there's this contradiction between, okay, survival of the fittest, okay, I'll do whatever it takes to survive. Well, guess what? Get out of my way. Because it's kill or be killed. Yet, at the same time, evolutionists say there's something within us, innately good, that we are to love one another. It's a contradiction. Who gets to decide those things? As an atheist, if there is no God, then who gets to decide right from wrong? Who gets to decide our morals? Who gets to decide the culture that we live in? So we can think, see, it's a big topic, isn't it? We can think, the law, man, I don't understand anything from Galatians. I don't understand any of it. Well, we're trying to help you understand it's a big deal that we're talking about. Because at the end of the day, somehow all of us live under certain rules whether it's brought on by the nation or brought on by our, the religion or the worldview that we follow. And you have to ask yourself some tough questions. Okay? Who's deciding what I believe in and what I'm following? And the law comes from God to say, this is what God has established. And it's holy and it's good. And it comes from God. It's come from heaven to humanity as opposed to humanity making it up. So the law has a purpose. The law is brought in to deal with sin. The law is brought in, it defines sin. The law comes and says, okay, it's not just a moral, sideways, lateral thing between humans. It's actually a standard that when we don't follow it, we first and foremost, it's an offense against God. So this is a sobering thing. Another sobering thing is this. The law actually reveals our sinfulness. The law actually reveals how bad we really are. And we have to understand this, that the Bible says the whole world's in trouble, that we're all prisoners. And we think, many of us, okay, who might not consider ourselves a Christian, that we're born free, that we're born sort of neutral, that we're born maybe moral, that we're free agents. And you would think this, if we can just get better educated, and if we can just come up with better laws, then we'll become a better people. And that's a lot of people's worldview. Not that education's a bad thing, not that noble laws are necessarily a bad thing, but we think we can just come up with better education and better laws, we'll become a better people, and that will help decrease sort of the wrongs in society. And yet, how many thousand years later are we? Still, many of us, driven by that. If we can just educate people better, if we can just come up with better laws, if we can just legislate these things, then that will solve our problems. And you would think a holy law given by God, our creator himself, you would think if God spoke and gave us rules and guidelines that were for us and would protect us and would bless us if we obeyed them, you would think our natural reaction would be, Thank you, God. We were a bit ignorant, but now that you've spoken, we're going to be much better because we realize before in our arrogance, we didn't know right from wrong. Now you've given it. Now we'll become a better people. And what does history reveal? 
things got worse. History reveals things get worse, that we're still a prisoner. There's something wrong on planet Earth. There's something wrong in our heart. We saw it this week, okay, just even in the Gleaner, okay, our local paper. One of the articles after the horrible uh, shooting in Colorado, the headline is, what kind of people are we becoming? And just asking those tough questions, like, why do people do this? And what's wrong with our society? And asking all those good questions, but really not being able to come up with any answers, then, you know, there's something wrong with our school system, there's something wrong in our family life. All those things, we're saying, actually, there's something wrong in our walk with God. There's something wrong in our relationship with God. And we find this out, which is really, again, kind of mind-boggling. When God gives his law, not only does it not solve all the problems, as we've seen, it actually makes things worse. When God gives his law, we don't just say, oh, well, there we go. We submit to it. A funny thing happens. It's this. The law actually provokes sin. We hate being told what to do. So the law is given. Okay, and Paul says this in Romans 7. He said, if I wasn't told not to covet, okay, first of all, he says, I wouldn't even know that covet was a sin. But then he says, there's something, as soon as you're told something that you can't do, guess what you want to do? You want to do the opposite. And anyone has kids, whoa, man, doesn't take you long to figure that one out. And you have to use reverse psychology. You want to do something, you tell them not to do, knowing that they're going to do it. So we have to sometimes trick things with our kids, don't we? Okay? So with Anna, who's two and a half, we want her to get to do something. We tell her the opposite because we know she'll do what we ask her not to do. Okay? So Anna, don't do this, which is actually what we want her to do because we know she's going to do it. Now, folks, you can take anything. You look at, we talked about it before, our speed limit. You're driving along, you don't know what the speed limit is, you're doing fine. You think, well, it must be like 100. And you go by a sign and it says 80. You think, oh, well, it's 80. I didn't know that. I will go back down to 80. You're going, 80? It should be like 120. <laughs> and there's something within you. They're going, I'm not going 80. And now that I've got Micah behind me now, I'm much more aware. He said, Dad, what's the speed limit? 80. How come you're going 90? I'm like, oh. <laughs> he knows too much now. <laughs> and we justify everything, don't we? So this is the thing about the law. We want it to apply to other people, but we don't want it to apply to ourselves. Now, let me give you another funny illustration. But if you ever want to get an illustration of what the law is like, take up golf. You can pick any sport, but golf really bugs me. Do you know how many rules there are in golf? There are rules I didn't even know were rules. And when I'm just out by myself, and I don't know the rules, it's great. <laughs> well, that tree branch shouldn't have been there, so I'll just move my ball, because obviously that's the maintenance people of this golf course. That's their problem. They didn't do their job, so I get a free pick. Okay? 
Now, if I saw Bart doing that, I'd be like, Bart, you're not really supposed to do that. That's a two-stroke penalty. Sorry, man. It's just the rules, man. Right? I feel for you. My heart's for you, but I'm just obeying the rules. You're under the rules, man. And if you go out with someone who knows the rules in golf, it's a very scary and frustrating thing. I didn't know that practice swing just cost me a stroke. Who made up these rules anyways? But there's something within you, and this is what the law does. It does a couple of things. It provokes sin. As soon as you're told not to do it, there's something within you. You want to do it. It's a heart issue. The other thing the law does, you want it to apply to everybody else. So the guy that goes by you, when you're doing 120 and he's doing 140, you're saying, I hope the cops are up ahead. (laughs) Because he's breaking the law. And there's a justice part of you that applies. But when I'm speeding, man, I got important meetings to get to, and if I ever get caught, I'll have to explain to the cop, I'm sorry, but here's the things, and I'm sure he'll let me go because I'm justified in my excuse for breaking the law. And that's what it's like with God. We want it to apply to everybody else, but we have excuses for why it shouldn't apply to us. So the law has a purpose. God established the law, okay, because he has to deal with sin. And it's for a temporary thing until Jesus comes along, helps define what sin is, okay, helps bring that God's involved in that, okay. It does this. It helps show us how sinful we really are. It provokes us to sin. And it shows that we want it for everybody else, but we don't want it for us. Now, we have to be careful here, and Paul says this as well, because we can think, that the law then is bad or evil. The law isn't bad. Actually, Paul says it's really good. So we have to be careful here when we say these things, as Paul did, and he says it a lot in Romans 7 as well. The law is good. The law is given from God. The law is to be respected. The law is holy. It's given from God. But what we understand as we understand the law is this. We are worse off than we ever thought. And again, when I'm on my own and I don't understand rules and all that, I think I'm doing pretty good. I think I'm a pretty good golfer. Okay? I can break 100. Woohoo! I'll say that's nine, not 18 holes. But, <laughs> but I go out with Wilf, who's a, like a professional golfer. I'm doing well to break 150, man. Why? Because now I'm accountable to someone who knows the rules. And I'm a lot worse golfer than I thought I was. Because there's a standard in place. And Paul's saying this. Terry Virgo says it this way. If I can quote Terry Virgo. He says, regarding the law, God wants to make it abundantly clear that humanity in our sin is utterly sinful. Adding the law to humanities does not improve us, but strangely makes us even worse. And this moves on to our next point. The law does not come to save us, but to show us our need of a Savior. And this is the good news, is the law leads us to Jesus. And Paul uses an interesting phrase here. Okay, and you've got to understand a bit of where Paul's coming from in his culture in his day. In his day, sort of in the Roman Empire, okay, it was very common for this to happen. If you were... Uh, more from a well-off household, okay, and you were, say, the father in that home, you might have a whole estate, you might have your kids, but you also might have many slaves, 
there. And actually what happened a lot of time is there was a guardian or different terms are used, maybe a child bear or different things. There was a guardian there that actually brought all the kids together and disciplined them, had authority over them, and was in charge of all the kids. Can you follow me on that? There was a guardian there, kids together, both slave kids, and you wouldn't know necessarily if you were to zoom back a couple thousand years ago and you're looking at this household playing out in the yard, you've got a guardian there, you couldn't tell who was the rightful son that guess what? All that household is going to become his inheritance and who the other kids were. You couldn't tell the difference because there was a guardian put in charge over all of them. But as the kids grew up and there came a certain point in time when the firstborn, the son, reached a certain age and all the things happened in their society, guess what? That firstborn, that son, then went from being an heir to all those things to actually being the rightful owner, to having a rightful relationship with his father that he now no longer was under the care of the guardian, but actually had full access to his father and with his father owned all of the inheritance. And Paul's using that illustration. Now, while the kid was growing up, that guardian was good. And that guardian was, had a purpose, but it was for a time. And Paul's using that example of the law. He's saying, while the children of Israel were still children, in the sense of being the people of God, and until the time when Jesus was coming to fulfill the promise given to Abraham, the law, all those rules, instructions, was put in place as a guardian until Jesus came. During that time, for the people of God were under the law. So you followed the Ten Commandments. You followed all the rules. You followed all the ceremonial laws. You followed all the civil laws. That's what the people of God tried to do. They didn't do very well. Okay, And a lot of times they lost their way. But that's what it was like. However, when Jesus came, hallelujah, born under the law, at the fullness of time, in God's right timing, he, when he came, he fulfilled the requirements of the law so that those who were under the law came out under the law, which was their guardian. And now, guess what? Jesus brings us into full access to our Father in heaven, which Kevin's going to take a look at next week as we continue on chapter 3 into chapter 4. We no longer are under the guardian because we, as Jesus has come 2,000 years ago, this is what Paul's hammering home. He takes us from under the law because Jesus fulfilled the law and he brings us to our Father that we can say, Abba, Father, and he goes beyond that. What does he do? He puts his Holy Spirit within us. And now Paul's saying this. Now that you've been set free from under the law, that doesn't mean you go and you commit adultery and you covet and now you can steal not because you're not under the law anymore. Guess what? By his Holy Spirit, God empowers us to actually obey the law because now we want to please God. And the law that was given to show us right from wrong could never help us to actually obey it. And that's what the problem was. But now, under new covenant, it's a new day, a new testament, a new chapter, a new day dawning. If Jesus 
fulfilled the law, resurrected it, paid the price, all those things. He's now saying, as we put our faith in him, he leads us to our Father in heaven, who now gives us his Holy Spirit, so that we're empowered now to please God and actually obey the very law that was given for good that didn't empower us to actually obey it. So we can sometimes think, okay, and this is the confusion. Okay, I'm no longer under law, so therefore I'm a free agent. I can do whatever I want. Hallelujah, Jesus set me free. Now we can go do whatever we want. Paul say, no. If you read in Romans 7, now you're married to Jesus. You're, you're united with Christ. But he empowers us to please God. And he gives us a new heart so that our heart actually wants to please God. That's our new desire. And therefore, we can follow the Ten Commandments. Because we know God as Father. We can say, I don't want any other gods except for the one true and living God. I don't want any idols that I'm going to serve or bow down to. I want to worship the true and living God. I don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. I want to honor and I want to worship and I want the honor coming from my lips instead of swearing and cursing. Okay? We want to remember the Sabbath day. It's not so much as Paul says the actual day. It's taking time to remember that we rest in God, that Jesus makes us right with God, not obeying the law. And we follow through all those different things. Okay? Finally, we have a Savior who fulfilled the requirements of the law. Because the law says, to be right with God, you've got to be perfect. And if you break one law, it says if you broke all of them. And we're just like, oh, I was doing so well. But then, man, I was at work and I got so mad and I swore and I'm like, oh, my consecutive days of 131 days without really sinning too bad is now broken. And what do I do with that? And we can go under shame and guilt and condemnation. Or we can say, well, I messed one up. I might as well blow it all. And we go to either extreme of condemnation. We're just like, man, the law is there. I'm golfing with Will every week, and he just keeps telling me all the things I'm doing wrong. And I know he's right. So that's one thing. Or I can say, well, I'm not going to play golf anymore. I'm just going to give it up. Okay? And folks, okay, many people who grew up in church, that's their experience of Christianity, are those two things. It's like, man, I know I'm not perfect, and I know right from wrong, and I just can't do it. And so they try in vain, under guilt and condemnation, and there's no joy and there's no pleasure in God, and it's all under me trying. Or, Christianity is all religion, it's all rules, I'm out of here. And we've missed the gospel. We've missed the good news that Jesus paid for our sin, but then he gives us his Holy Spirit, and our position has changed, okay? That's the main thing is that our position is no longer under, are we under the law in the sense that we have to do everything to obey it, to be right with God. No, Jesus makes us right with God, and I put my faith in him. Therefore, I'm removed under the law, and I'm in a new position. I'm a son of God. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because I've been set free from the power okay, of sin and the law, and now I'm united with Christ in his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God the helper 
empowers us to live a life that pleases God. It's a radical change. We're actually obeying the same law, but you're coming at it from two different lives. And folks, the thing that Paul was dealing with is people were saying, well, once you become a Christian, okay, that's one thing, you put your faith in Jesus, but really to get right with God and now to live for God, you've got to do all these extra things as well. And Paul's saying, no! Because you don't only get free from the law by putting your faith in Jesus. As you live this new life, you live this new life by keep going to Jesus. And that's the last thing he says. We're not only saved by Jesus, but we're empowered by Jesus. It's a whole new way of relating to God. And that's what it is. Terry Virgo says this. I'll close with this. Life in the Spirit has come to replace life and subjection to the outward letter of the law. The heir no longer relates to the authority of the guardian, but enjoys new, direct, intimate access to his Father, aided by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is so good. Because the law's role has been fulfilled in bringing you to Christ, it is of crucial importance that you don't go back to law, failing to grasp the new and glorious liberty into which you have been brought as a son and indeed an heir of God with the inner witness of the Holy Spirit confirming the full rights of son. You are not under law, but under grace, Romans 6.14. You must never return to law as though your salvation were incomplete without it. You must revel in the gift of righteousness that the new covenant provides. Great book, God's Lavish Grace by Terry Virgo. He explained all this so well, so helpful. So folks, trying this morning okay, to understand that in salvation, we're saved by Jesus Christ. We put our faith in him. He makes us right with God. Everything we've been explaining over the last three or four weeks, you can listen to them again online. And the question is, okay, if God gave his promise to Abraham, it was fulfilled in Jesus, why was the law even given? That's the question. We're trying to understand the law was given to deal with sin. It was a temporary thing until Jesus came. And what does it do? It helps define what sin is. It defines what right or wrong is from God's perspective versus us just trying to make it up from whatever worldview you might have. Okay, so it really draws the line. The law does this. It really shows and it proves that we're sinful, that we're not just good, and that for better education and better understanding and better laws, we will become a better society and all the world's problems will be solved. The law reveals there's a hard issue because guess what? The law provokes sin. The law reveals our hearts that, you know what, we don't like being told what to do. <laughs> it shows that we actually have a serious heart issue. And the law is good. It's given from God. It's good. But the good news is the law leads us to Jesus Christ. The law actually proves we cannot do this on our own. We actually need a Savior. And like that guardian, until a certain age, okay, authority over that kid, Okay? For a certain period of time, the law was the guardian for the people of Israel. But when Jesus came, full access to the Father, the Holy Spirit is given. You don't have to be under that guardian anymore. And that's the good news of the gospel, that we can be free. 
that we can be empowered now to live a life that pleases God. Paul says the Ten Commandments are still there. But Jesus fulfilled them and now empowers us to live them out that pleases God by the help of his Holy Spirit. Folks, that's good news for us today. That's good news that we don't have to either be under condemnation and guilt and shame all our lives or we just walk away from God because it's just too hard and I can't do it. You're right, you can't do it. That's why you need a Savior. And we put our trust in Jesus and we put our trust in Jesus every single day to help us live a life that pleases God. This morning we're going to share in communion where we remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember what he did on the cross. We remember his shed blood that paid the price. We remember his broken body that was done for us. That he took all our guilt, all our shame, all our condemnation on the cross that was rightfully ours. He fulfilled. He obeyed every rule. He should have got off free, but he took on the rules that we broke before God. He took them to the cross. He went to the grave, but by the power of God, three days later, God raised him from the dead, conquered sin and death. And when we take communion, remember that Jesus is coming again. Okay? And it's a reminder for every single one of us, if Jesus came today, where have we put our trust? Are we ready to meet God? Do we have a relationship with God the way that he has given to us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So it's, it's a response to remember, for those of us as Christians, never to take it for granted. Okay? It's a reminder that we don't live, again, under the law, but we're now united with Christ. We're led by his Holy Spirit. For those of you here maybe exploring Christianity, it's another opportunity to observe and to help learn and understand why Jesus is so central to every aspect of our lives. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I'm going to ask our life groups to come and get ready to share communion. Okay? And then they're going to help serve. You can take communion where you are. You can give thanks together on your own, maybe you're in small groups. And then Dan and the team are going to lead us in one more song. And again, I get, give this as an opportunity. Okay? Before you take that, to remember the things that we've talked about this morning both in salvation, that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but also in everyday life, that Jesus, I need you, okay, to live a life that pleases God. All right, let me pray, and then our life groups will help serve you, okay, and then we'll finish with a worship song together. So Father in heaven, we thank you today for your goodness to us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've made a way. We thank you that there's a purpose for you giving the law that leads us to Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we live in a day and age where Jesus has already come to planet Earth, that he's paid the price on the cross with his life, that you've raised him from the dead, that we can partake of that today, we can, by faith, say we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that every day we say, Jesus, I need you. I need your spirit to live a life that pleases God. And we know that you're coming again. So Jesus, we just pray, by your Holy Spirit now, would you help us to even respond, even as we break bread together to remember you, to rest and trust in you. God, to deal with any condemnation, shame, and guilt. Lord, to repent if we've gone and turned our back on you, to come back to you through Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. Come and now bring illumination and conviction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.